0: This is episode 83 of the Travel Writing World podcast. And today I'm speaking with Sarah Wheeler and Jonathan Chatwin about Apsley Cherry Garrard's The Worst Journey in the World, a book that is often cited as one of the most important travel books of the 20th century. And this year marks the centenary of the book's publication. My guest today, Sarah Wheeler, knows a thing or two about Antarctica and Apsley Cherry Garrard. She spent some time on the continent which she recounts in her 1996 book, Terra Incognita. And she wrote a biography of Apsy Cherry Garrard, simply called Cherry. You'll no doubt recognize the voice of my second guest, Jonathan Chatwin, whom I spoke with before on several occasions, notably when we discussed his book, Long Peace Street, and again, about the life and work of Bruce Chatwin. I'll put those links in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show financially, please visit travelwritingworld.com forward slash support. Or if you want to stay up to date with travel and nature and place writing news, join Genius Loci, my free monthly email roundup of news and links at jeremybasetti.com. A new roundup goes out on the first of the month. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this conversation. So now, here are Sarah Wheeler and Jonathan Chatwin. Sarah, Jonathan, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks, Jeremy. Now, this year marks the 100-year publication anniversary of Apsi Cherry Garrard's book, The Worst Journey in the World, which is often cited in discussions of the best travel books. It recounts the uh, so-called Terra Nova expedition of Robert Robert Falcon Scott to the South Pole in 1910, um, which uh, Cherry Garrard was, was on. Um, so as, as the book title suggests, it was a disastrous mission uh, for reasons we'll, we'll discuss today. Um, and it's also a big book, um, and one in which I think the suffering never ends, it seems. But, um, but first, maybe we can talk about the, the expedition itself to give us a little bit of context. Um, I guess there are two main missions uh, or objectives of, of the expedition. Um, as, maybe we can start with you, Sarah. Can you tell us a little bit about the the, objection, the objectives or the mission of the expedition?
1: Yes, certainly. Well, the expedition main aim was to get to the South Pole, be the first uh, ever to get to the South Pole, uh, meaning that Britain's flag would be the first to fly there. The second um, uh, aim was scientific. Science was uh, all important to all the explorers of the heroic age, and um, they all took along um, lots of geology equipment and all kinds of other scientific equipment. Such was the state of the art in uh, 1910 and planned to bring back uh, specimens and samples of all kinds of things. So twofold aims, one geographic to get to the South Pole and two to further the aims of science in such disciplines as the polar regions offer.
0: Mm -hmm. And there was a specific specimen they wanted to, to bring back, wasn't there?
1: So of all the scientific exploratory expeditionary work that was going on, one was the quest to bring back the uh, eggs of the emperor penguin in a particular early stage of incubation. Why? It was thought at the time that this would provide the key uh, to the evolutionary development, scales to feathers. Again, why? Well, you have to remember that Darwin was the big thing at the time. I mean, Scott travelled along with um, The Origin of Species in his sleeping bag. They all talked about it all the time. And there was uh, another book uh, by a German, Ernst Haeckel, which had come out previously, mm. which had really paved the way. And in this book, which was a seminal, a seminal work of evolutionary bio- biology, Haeckel had postulated that as it was thought that the emperor penguin was the most ancient bird, we now know it is not, that um, ontology, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. And what that means is if you get a fetus, an embryo at an early enough stage and dissect it, you will see the early stage of development, i.e. an early stage when it's just becoming a bird, having been uh, a scaly thing. We also know that that whole theory is now wrong. But of course, science only moves forward by disproving wrong theories. Anyway, in order to uh, move further with that, they had to get hold of the eggs, of the emperor penguin, which of all creatures uh, incubates its eggs in the polar winter, is the only one. All the other penguins swim north to warmer waters. The emperor hatches and incubates, well, incubates, the female hatches and then swims off herself to get warm, and the males incubate in the polar winter. So to get these eggs at the right stage of development, they had to fetch them from a rookery in the mm-hmm. polar winter. Now that means it's dark all the time and it's cold, extremely cold, and it's extremely windy. And the rookery was a five-week return journey from the uh, hut. So um, that was a mission within a mission, a mission to collect the emperor penguin eggs. and the ch- the title of the book, the worst journey in the world, it sort of refers to that journey to get the emperor penguin eggs from Cape Crozier, which Cherry and two other men went on. But it also now refers to, and Cherry meant meant it to. It refers to what the books are about, which is the whole expedition.
0: Hmm. Right. So that's that's the interesting part of this book that we that we learn um, that the The title of the book is kind of a misnomer, and I guess we all now associate the worst journey being the entire expedition from from the United Kingdom to New Zealand to the to the polar region. Um, we associate it with the entire journey, but it originally referred to that's what they called the winter journey, the expedition to get the eggs, and the polar journey is the journey that Scott and um, four other men, I believe. Uh, went to the South pole and tried to plant their flag. But, um, maybe we can, uh, talk about Scott's version of, or, or Scott's journey, um, first, and then we can kind of talk a little bit more about cherry and, um, you know, and, and the book itself. So, uh, Scott wanted to be the first to plant the flag, uh, uh, down in, in the polar journey. Um, you'd mentioned earlier Darwin, um, um, and what do you know? What the role of the Royal Royal Geographic Society was in kind of funding expeditions like these? Um, was was Scott's journey and his previous journey were they were they funded by the Royal Geographic Society or was was this a self funded mission?
1: Um, the Royal Geographic Society the t- had a, quite a stranglehold on expeditions at the time, so yes, it was they that picked their man in mm-hmm. this case Scott and did most of the funding. Uh, the ship was a it was partly a naval expedition. Um, So most of the uh, crew were um, in the Royal Navy, Um, some were civilians and one was from the army. Um, So it was really the RGS who were in charge of events. Yes.
0: Okay. And Scott was basically uh, on a race to get to the South Pole before a Norwegian counterpart. And we discover in the book that... Uh, There was a clear winner in this by about a month. The Norwegians planted their flag uh, before before the British, Um, and it was on Scott's return um, from the South Pole that uh, his fate was sealed. You know, I got the sense when I was reading the book. I don't know, uh, John Jonathan, if you want to add to this, but I got the sense that uh, there was maybe a miscommunication with the um, the dogs and one of the depots in trying to get Scott and his crew. Back. There was a miscommunication. Maybe people not wanting to point fingers on on that. Do you have any insights in, in, into that?
2: Sure. I mean, I think in latter decades, one of the main kind of points of of controversy and discussion mm-hmm. around this book and this journey is are the what ifs of whether something could have been done um, to, to to rescue Scott um, and. In the in the book, Cherry Garrard writes that the whole business simply bristles with ifs. If only certain things had happened. Mm-hmm. Um, the the return journey from 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 the from the pole, um, Scott faced uh, incredibly hostile conditions. And um, one of the potential explanations for what happened was that this was a, a particularly uh, unseasonable period of time. Um, and he is beset, particularly in the latter stages, uh, by the weather. they, they end up at basically 11 miles away from a depot, um, which, which if they could have reached it would have, would have saved their lives. Mm-hmm. There are also, um, suggestions and there were instructions given, um, that, and Cherry Garrard himself ends up at that depot. Uh, he's been told, I mean, there's a little bit of uncertainty that swells around exactly what he was told. And, and um, what the instructions from Scott were, but he reaches the depot and doesn't go on any further, um, partly because if he did, he would have to have killed the dogs in order to, uh, that he had used to, to pull the sledge in order, to, in order to provide food for the other dogs. And, and so he returns and, and you know, one of the hallmarks of the book and uh, uh, his life is this sense of a uh, guilt that perhaps he could have um, saved them. Um, and as I say, you know, for for many decades, Scott's reputation uh, was of this, uh, uh, was heroic, uh, uh, no, this tragic hero who died on the ice. And then sort of beginning in the 70s, there was a kind of um, revisionist version of the story in which Scott was presented as a, as a kind of a bit of a bungler who hadn't perhaps organised the expedition along the right lines. Um, and I, I think it's very easy to sit, in judgment of the potential, you know, both in terms of Scott's organisation um, and Cherry Garrard's actions um, later on, you know, uh, of of what what should have happened, um, I think it's it's much easier to do that from the comfort of a warm house than it is um, out on the um, you know on the Antarctic wilderness. So I, I, in a way, I don't. It's become one of the kind of prevailing narratives around the story, but in a way, I don't find that terribly, in interesting. Um, point of debate, because ultimately what happened happened. Um, and the book is is so wonderful and so interesting, partly because it reflects um, that sense of Cherry Garrard's own kind of uncertainty and guilt about what happened. Um, and, and obviously, you know, he writes it, it's published in 1922, in the intervening years, you have had the First World War, in which a number of other members of the expedition have gone off and um, taken part and, and some have been killed. So there's this sense of kind of national trauma having happened as well in the intervening decades since the expedition.
0: Mm-hmm. Do we have a sense of why it took Cherry Garrard some 10 years after the expedition to, to you know gather all the documents and, and put the book together?
2: I mean, Sarah can speak to this probably more um, insightfully than I can, but he, when he, he goes to the war uh, during that period. And I think one of the interesting things from a kind of literary point of view about the book is it's actually... Um, Created from the first-person narratives of a number of different members of the expedition, it's not just Cherry Garrard's mm-hmm. account. He draws on all sorts of different letters and diary entries, and I think that's one of the things that gives it its its power, particularly in the latter stages of the journey, where you you see uh, Scott's and the party's imminent death from mm-hmm. their own perspective, and then the kind of tragedy of the discovery of the tent um, later on by the search party.
0: Right. That, uh, the there's a part uh, where he quotes at length Bower. Well, he does it throughout the entire book, but to, um, in 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 recounting the polar expedition, Rick, he you know has just this incredible excerpt from Bower's diary, and it just gives you a sense of the uh, the the resignation a, a, that that these men were were dealing with at that that moment. It's just completely tragic, and um, what a treasure to have. I know this sounds grim, but what a treasure to have you know, those, those writings from these men at that, you know, at that very kind of grim moment in, of their lives.
2: Yeah. And I think one of the remarkable things about the book is that it creates such a sense of narrative compulsion and suspense uh-huh. for a story that we all, you know, all know the ending of, uh, and particularly when the book was published, I mean, he was, uh, you know, Scott was, was absolutely one of the most famous men in the world. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there's quite a skill to that. And if you look at other, um, books about expeditions they're often not wonderfully well put together you know i think of shackleton's um south and things like that you know they're interesting stories but the craft of of how it's bolted together is perhaps a little bit lacking the wonderful thing about the worst journey in the world is uh, it has both this incredible story of adventure but is also a really intricately and interestingly crafted piece of literature
0: yeah i find it uh, a funny and strange in a strange way funny book at times um Terry Garrard wrote in the book somewhere that he he said something like Antarctic exploration is seldom as uh, bad as it sounds or something like that. Uh, and Sarah, you spent a few months in the in, in the region for your own book Terra Incognita. So I was wondering if you could perhaps paint us a portrait of what it's actually like to be there whether his his um kind of comments undermine how how dangerous and rigorous an expedition there really is.
1: I think that the worst journey in the world makes it quite clear, the real dangers, and after all, five men died, Mm -hmm. um, proving the point. Um, And uh, speaking of my own experience, as you've asked me to in the Antarctic, you certainly have a sense of the the climate wants to get you. It's there to get you. You have a sense of of being in the presence of a killer. And that's not just because it's so extreme. Uh, It's colder and the wind is much, much, much fiercer but also it changes so quickly. The absolutely beautiful sunny day, blue sky, and then it changes in, you know, like you flick your fingers into something that you just have this overwhelming sense wants you dead. And certainly my admiration for what they'd gone through uh, increased about a million fold when I was there. First of all, I wasn't pulling my sledge or do anything, mm-hmm. doing anything remotely heroic. I don't have any of those skills. And secondly, I had kit, you know, 20th, 20th century kit. Um, They had reindeer for sleeping bags and reindeer for jackets, which are absolutely hopeless because, of course, once they freeze, when they defrost again, they weigh weigh many tons. They didn't have um, adequate food. They didn't have any of the nutrition that the sledge pullers these days have. Um, To me, it's an absolute miracle that they didn't all die. And I spent one night, in fact, on Captain Scott's bunk. And um, hearing the the way the wind throws up stones at the window all the time, um, you think something's happening. You think that surely the wind is so fierce that the whole hut's going to fall down. Of course, it hasn't fallen down in a hundred years, but um, it really uh, is terrifying. I had all the gear with me that I could have done something about it if the hut had fallen down, but they. Didn't have any of that. And mm-hmm. uh, my admiration for them um, knows no bounds. And I certainly don't think that Cherry over it in any sense. And he does make jokes, as you say. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's partly why the book is so palatable. I think by instinct, he understood as a writer that you've got to have the light and the shade, and you've got to be able to modulate the narrative drive, the tension. And that's really what makes the worst journey stand out amongst all books of exploration, really, in that Cherry uh, was an instinctual writer and he knew um, how to control the narrative drive and to modulate and to have light and shade. And we have uh, beautiful sort of portraits of, of penguins and penguin behavior, uh, pen portraits of the men, practicalities, people really want to know Um how did you sew up the sleeping bags and what were the runners of the skis like? What happened to the ponies? Because they'd taken ponies south. But then what happened to the motor vehicles? There's a mix of all that stuff with, of course, the killer. What makes the worst journey? Uh, one of the greatest travel books of all time, if not the greatest, is it, it elevates it um, into a great metaphor for life itself. Um, as Cherry wrote, it is a story about human minds with all kinds of ideas and questions involved. Which stretch beyond the furthest horizon, and the very famous last line: "You will, uh, um, if you march your winter journeys, you will have your reward, so long as all you want is a penguin's egg." And the reason (laughs) that note of redemption at the end was twofold: one is, let's find redemption and hope. It's the writer's duty to have hope, I believe. And Jerry was trying to find it there after he'd lost his, you know, his two best friends amongst the polar party. And secondly, um, these eggs that had survived, he'd brought them back to the National Nat- Natural History Museum in London, and um, nobody was really interested anymore. Not so much for the reason I've described, that the science had been discredited, but really because they had other things to think about at the time, still um, emerging from the war. And also, Terry really overdid all that part of his book. Um, to make a good story that's what writers do that's what writers are supposed to do so in other words he'd gone through all of this he'd got these eggs back the other two on the winter journey with him mm-hmm. were dead in the polar party and then nobody was interested and in his book he makes a great thing about almost that they clapped them in the corner and said well yeah, thanks very much um see you later i'm quite sure it wasn't anything like that bad but that's how cherry felt so he had to redeem it all which is what writers do if they can. So if you march your winter journeys, you will have your reward so long as all you want is a penguin's egg. And that is what the book is about. It's about redemption and it's about marching your winter journey. Nothing to do with the Antarctic or exploration or having a frozen beard or anything at all. The winter journey might be, you know, building a garden shed or telling somebody you love them or putting down the first drink or something. And... That is what I think has inspired so many millions of people since the worst journey was published in the magical year of nineteen twenty two. Not to me any great uh, coincidence that it was published in the the year of modernism, you know, when mm-hmm. modernism was born to a light to the lighthouse and wasteland and uh, you know Ulysses and all, all the rest of it 1922, the year of modernism. Well, actually, the worst journey, even though Terry was such an old reactionary. Um, and the whole polar endeavour represents the establishment. Um, there is something about the smashing up of the old that modernism represents and the great white space on which to write the new that I believe in Cherry's reactionary heart. There is something that's very much um, with the tenor of the times um, in 1922. And incidentally, you said about why did it take in 10 years? Well, when you look at what those 10 years entailed, it's amazing to me that didn't take him 40 years first of all as you said the war um he went off to fight then he was invalided back and he's terribly ill and then he was uh commissioned by the dreaded antarctic committee to write the official account of the um expedition uh and that was to have all scientific tables and lists and all kinds of things and he just battled with that um for a couple of years and realized that that just was not the book he wanted to write. Mm-hmm. He wanted to um, paint, paint the expedition in light and shade. He wanted to show Scott, this great Galahad of the snows, even him in, in light and shade. He wanted to have flesh and blood, and make make captain Scott stand up. He wanted to show it as it was. So that was two years down the drain. He had to say to the expedition committee, I can't do this. Um, you publish all this stuff as sort of comp- separate catalogues of, of this and that um and as jonathan was saying he had access to diaries of various others um who'd survived and plus letters they'd sent home of the dead ones um in particular and so there's something about the worst journey that is like a fugue in many voices people all chipping in although much more important than that is the fact that it was Cherry's overarching narrative of course there's there is a problem with that in itself in that the expedition was very much of its time um, and so it was divided into officers and men um, as it was called then in the Royal Navy terms and of course it was the officers who kept who the scientists were honorary officers who tended to keep diaries, get interviewed, uh, keep notes, send letters home that were that were kept and so on. So they have much more of a say than the men um, and Cherry really did his best to recover some Of those voices, people like Lashley and of course, um, Tom Crean, the Irishman, who um, weren't the people the RGS would consider sort of at the front line and of the front, the, the utmost importance. But Terry did realize and he did try and give them a voice as he tried to help them off the page.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like what you say here about the light and shade. Um, and it, I get the sense that. We, we don't just see that with Cherry Garrard's writing, but also in the letters and in the notes. I mentioned earlier this kind of lighthearted, I guess, acceptance of they're, they're just trying to make the best of the, the terrible situation they're in. There's uh, one scene uh, in the book where they're leaving from New Zealand and they're getting battered by this terrible storm and the dogs and the ponies and, you know, the gear, you know. Washing out into to the ocean, some dog, some lucky dog gets washed out into the ocean and then gets pushed back onto the deck, and his life gets saved. Um, and I think it was bauer's Vol- um journal here, but he says, uh, under the worst conditions, this Earth is still a good place to live, which is this kind of wonderful volta, uh, literary kind of turn that makes us, you know, we 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 feel a certain way because of this, uh, because of these. I guess this optimism, um, the, the, you mentioned the committee, um, wanted him to write the official account and parts of this book do feel like they're official accounts, like the records of what people brought and what they did and where they went and the time of the day, you know, the latitude and the longitude, but there is this human element of of the book, as you mentioned, this nice play of light and shade. I think that makes this book so, so appealing and enduring after all these years.
1: Right. Well, Cherry said at the end of his book, in a superficial sense, they never failed. and That was so important that it was the the redemption from failure. And he believed that um, in a superficial sense, they never failed, although the cost to his emotional well-being was enormous. He never recovered really from it. Um, And he uh, did try desperately to be optimistic. Stories you've mentioned, like the one about the dog that was saved and how the world is a good place after all that is the overriding message I think um of the book or at least one that Cherry is just trying so desperately hard um to come to bring over he said somewhere else that what was an important thing about the important thing about the expedition was the response of the spirit Mm -hmm. and that would have been another title really um of the book the response of the spirit initially the first title was never again (laughs) um (laughs) but uh Uh, That was deemed too negative. It could have been the response of the spirit. And it was Cherry's neighbour in Hertfordshire, uh, GBH, George George Bernard Shaw, who said, I call it, uh, why don't you call it the worst journey in the world? Um, So it changed from uh, Never Again to The Worst Journey in the World.
0: Mm -hmm. This is held as one of the great works of literature. Uh, Paul Theroux noted uh, that it's one of his favourite books. And he said that it was beautifully written and has this uh, subtle artistry. Um, do we, do we know anything about Cherry Garrard and his education? Did he, did he have a literary education or, um, did he approach this book from a different perspective, like from a documentary perspective? Do we know?
2: So in terms of his education, when he was, I don't know whether Sarah's already mentioned this, but he was, he was very young. Uh, you know, he went on the expedition as the youngest member of the party. He was 24 years old and he had, uh, read plastics at, at Oxford. Um, and, uh, you know, so he's fairly well educated, but in a fairly typical manner of, of 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 men of his social class of that era. Um, the book itself, I think, is is a remarkable achievement. It's as you mentioned earlier, Jeremy. It's a it's a big a big book, and I, I think to achieve, um Sarah's mentioned the kind of narrative tension modulations uh, of light and shade that he he managed to uh, is quite extraordinary. You know, and in the time that he he had to write it. Um, to me, I think it's an interesting book because I've, I read it first probably when I was about 17, and it's probably the book I've read more than than any other, I would say. And uh, I find it quite hard in some ways, uh, thinking in, in advance of talking with you today, uh, being analytical about it because it's something that I feel very uh, closely, emotionally connected to. But one of the reasons I think it has a, has a real power um, and that elevates it beyond... The expedition accounts, and I've read a lot of them, is that it's about two really powerful human things, and I think the first is friendship, in the sense that it was a, a record of um, two people that Kerry Garrard loved, um, uh, who he goes on the journey with, Bertie Bowers and Edward Wilson, and he writes about them um, in this. You know, if we talk about this almost inconceivable um, hardship that they had to put up with. Um, within that, you also have this almost inconceivably positive representation of these two men. Um, he writes of them: uh, they were gold, pure, shining, unalloyed. Words cannot express how good their companionship was. And so, I think that's one of the key aspects that elevates it into great literature. I think the other thing is that it's about another really powerful human emotion, which is which is nostalgia. And to me, it's almost reminiscent of the book of Pastoral modes of writing, a kind of longing for a prelapsarian world, um, a place of innocence. Um, and you know you get that very clearly in the descriptions, for example, of the life in the, in the hut. This was a, a place of, of simple pleasures um, and of male I mean, it's a very male book um, of, of male companionship. If it, for me, those are the two things that somehow, uh, this you know, first-time writer um, dealing with the trauma of losing his best friends and, and surviving the war. Mm. managed to craft this, this narrative, which is all about, as I say, friendship and, and nostalgia.
0: Mm-hmm. On a number of occasions I flagged throughout the book, uh, parts where he says, I'll remember those days, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> after having described this, this terrible situation, uh, you know, <laughs> it's kind of, uh, interesting, uh, this, these nice voltas, uh, throughout the text. It's very, very uplifting.
2: I think we can all, we can all relate to that. Um, you know, I think there's a, there's a, there's a quote from Virgil about, you know, it, even these things it will one day be a pleasure to recall. You know, this idea mm-hmm. that actually living through periods of hardship, they they stay with you in a really powerf- powerful, and visceral way. And I think for me, the bit the, the, the bits of the book that that stay with me are, I mean, the winter the winter journey to to Cape Crozier and their, you know, having to chisel their way into their frozen sleeping bags each each night. Um and I mean, it's almost absurd how, how bad it gets for them. Um, and and Cherry Howard has this, this um, kind of motto that he, he repeats to himself, which is, you've got it in the neck, stick it, stick it, you've got it in the neck. And he kind of chants this to himself as he, uh, as he tries to endure this unendurable um, surrounding. But so, yeah, as, as you say, he looks back on it, although it's a terrible tragedy that he has lived through. And you know, he deals with the trauma of that for the rest of his life. He looks back on it with a, with a, with a palpable sense of nostalgia.
0: Mm-hmm. Something really wonder, wonderful here that we are recounting the first times that we read this book with this sense of nostalgia. Uh, that's, uh, and, and then we're <laughs> recognizing that within his text itself. And we're, we're butting up uh, at the end of our time here. And I just wanted to ask if um, you guys had any final words on, you know, what makes this book and uh, Jonathan, I know you just spoke at length about this, but uh, Sarah, perhaps you can um, add to that. Like, what makes this book um, so enduring and so appealing a hundred years on?
1: Well, I think the best thing is to quote Cherry himself. He wrote, "It is a story about human minds with all kinds of ideas and questions involved, which stretch beyond the furthest horizon. Certainly, stretch beyond the twentieth century." And it'll stretch beyond the 21st as well. It's a story about being human. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time uh, today.
1: You are welcome. Nice to talk to you.
0: Thank you, Jeremy. You can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, Please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.comslash support.